Detroit Sun Center. For today's story, we come into the 20th century and we'll be reading the biography of a Korean female devotee, also known as a posalnim. This devotee's name was Masan, so she's called Masan Bosalnim. Her biography was written after her death by her Buddhist teacher. His name is Samu Sunam, and he is a Korean Buddhist monk. And for many years, both he and Masan were refugees in Canada and met there. Samu Sunam was so moved by the life and his encounters with Masan over the years that when she died, he took the time to write her biography and publish it in his Buddhist journal called Spring Wind. This story uh, shares the, the beauty and tragedy uh, of both of the lives of Masan and Samosunam. Masan Bosalnim by Samosunam. I first met Masan in the spring of 1974 in Toronto. On December 29th of 1973, I fell unconscious in the snow on my way home from work at the Canada Post Office. I worked there sorting parcels over the Christmas season. When I woke up in the midst of commotion, I was being taken to the emergency room. Where does it hurt, said the doctor. I pointed to the abscess behind my right ear. They opened it up and found that I had TB germs and they sent me to the sanitarium for three months. My heart sank when I realized I was now a patient with a serious illness. I thought the sanitarium would be located far away in the countryside, but it turned out to be just outside the city limits. I began my patient life there on New Year's Eve in the ward that I shared with 12 others. I was often ridiculed by the other patients because I really didn't speak English and I must have looked odd, being a short Asian man, the only Asian in the ward. There was a Native American Indian who was there, who was very quiet and reticent. He was their first choice for teasing, and he always endured their teasing with a gracious smile and avoided confrontation. I was very impressed with his nonviolent attitude, and in a way he became my teacher. It was during this time that I decided that the sanitarium would be the perfect place for me to practice a silent three-month meditation retreat. And so I was grateful for this opportunity, but unfortunately it was cut short. Although I was supposed to be in the sanitarium for three months, in the second week of February, the doctors decided that I was well enough to go home. They sent me back with several months' supply of five or six medications, and I was still set on doing my retreat. The next morning, while sitting before the altar, I made a vow to extend the three months into three years. Before I left Korea, I had promised my master, Sol Bong Sunam, 
that when I came west, I would eventually do a three-year retreat. Now was the time. I stopped taking my pills and instead believed in the healing power of my body and Dharma practice. This turned out to be wrong, but seems to be the only way that we human beings will learn. In early April that year, I was visited by five Korean women. They somehow heard that there was a monk living in the basement apartment, and they came to ask me to conduct Sunday services for them. I was hesitant, but I reluctantly accepted their request. Their request was natural and proper, but I was preoccupied with doing my retreat. It goes back to this small revolution that we had in Korean monasticism, where the monastics, also called Ipan, attempted to be pure and unworldly and had a kind of obsession with doing retreats and not involving themselves in the worldly affairs of other people, called Sapan. So I was aware of the challenges ahead as I attempted to overcome this spiritual obstacle. I knew that I might fail miserably in both personal cultivation or in serving the world. But like a Hwadu, I thought of the Bodhisattva Samantabhadra in his ninth vow. This vow states, follow worldly beings. So I figured that I had to be willing to learn from people and keep waking up every day in the harsh reality of everyday life, like a lotus in the muddy water. The Posel Nims invited me out to lunch, and so I followed them to a Korean restaurant on Bloor Street. Three days later, another Korean Posel Nim appeared. She was carrying rice and candles and incense. When I saw her, it took me back in time to the poor Korean countryside and the culture there of devotional worship by female devotees. This woman was special, and she was plain and unlearned, but there was something pure and glowing and naturally graceful about her. She made prostrations that moved me before the altar. She told me she saw me at the Korean restaurant three days before with the other Korean women. She said she came to Canada with her two daughters eight months before. Her son had been a minor in Germany for five years and brought his mother and her two other children to Toronto. So she was a dishwasher, and she told me that in the Korean restaurant where she worked, she never looked toward the dining hall, but just stayed focused on her dishes. But the day I was there at the restaurant with the other Koreans, she inexplicably decided to look toward the dining hall and saw me. She said she couldn't believe it and said to her co-workers, there's a Korean Buddhist monk here in Toronto? So eventually she was able to figure out where I lived. And she came to visit me and said, Sunim, I'm so happy to have found your temple. I told her this wasn't a temple, it was just a basement apartment. I said, and, but she said to me, no, Sunim, if there's a monk and a Buddha statue, this is a temple. This Bosonim began coming twice a week, on her day off and on another morning before work. She would help me prepare a meal and make a hundred not... Pr- 108 prostrations. She would wash the dishes and clean the meditation hall and bathroom. It was really just a living room, but she always called it a meditation hall. She would go to work afterward 
and could not get Sundays off, so she was unable to join the other Korean women for the Sunday services I had begun conducting for them. After several months, she did start joining us on Sundays, and when she would come, she would hardly say anything and would move around so quietly that I was often unaware of her presence. It was a few months after this that she came to me and asked if we were going to be conducting a Sunday service. I told her I was reluctant because of the tenant next door potentially being unhappy with us for having a public event in our, my small apartment. But the true reason I was reluctant was that I was still resistant to getting involved in a cumbersome public event and was still in fear of losing my personal retreat. Although the Korean women were visibly upset, it was Masan Poselnim who eventually helped change my mind. She came to me one day and said, Sunim, is it really true that we are not going to celebrate the Buddha's birthday? I told her that we could, but that we would do it quietly and informally. She then asked me, well, how about dedicating lanterns? It is a very special thing to do, don't you agree, Sunim? I said, oh, but Poselnim, the ceiling here is too low. We don't have enough room or even materials to make the lanterns. She stayed silent, and then she began to cry. And then she told me the following heartbreaking story. Sunim, let me share something with you. At the age of 13, I married a tinker. He was a simple mender of pots and pans, but I fell in love with him. He had no home nor savings, and he traveled from village to village, town to town, for his humble work. I married him, and we lived hand to mouth. Sometimes we would have to sleep under makeshift protection from the rain and cold. We lived like animals. Maybe worse, animals at least had a nest, but we had nothing. I was so young, and I didn't know anything. I got used to the hardship and poverty and deprivation. I became pregnant, and I delivered my first child on the road. I thought I was going to die. There was a grandmother in a nearby village who found me and came and helped me. She took me and the baby in to rest for a few days in her home. After the first baby, I just kept having babies in succession, one after the other. There was joy and happiness in nursing babies and raising children, but it didn't last long. I was always worried about feeding and clothing the children. At first, my husband was happy and helpful, but as he became more obligated to provide a living for us, he just was unable to continue doing it. The hardships brought many unwelcome companions, and at the end of a long and hard day of working, he would come home to hungry and whining children. He eventually lost his ability to cope. He became very angry and depressed, and then he started drinking. My life was like herding a flock of hungry piglets from place to place. She was so tired of her family's vagrant life, but more than anything, she was so upset because they were starving. She realized she had to take care of her children by herself. She took all of her children and went back to her hometown, Masan, which is a port city in South Korea, and is where she derived her name, Masan Bosonim. With the help of her relatives, she rented a small room and opened a roadside stand selling seasonal produce. But 
The spring brought hardship when food shortages were the most severe in the countryside. Over time, I gave birth to 11 children. I lost three and raised four sons and four daughters. I was happy when the big ones became old enough to leave home and feed themselves. In one small rented room, I lived huddled with my younger children, and we just waited patiently for the green shoots on the sunny side of the mountain to appear. I would take my children to pick greens from the fields. I could tell the edible plants from the inedible. My favorite were shepherd's purse, amaranth, and mugwort. But these wild and hardy plants were not enough to feed my children, and they had chronic malnutrition. And even the greens were in short supply to feed five mouths every day. It was the Korean War, and there were many vessels in the port of Masan waiting to unload war supplies. One morning, I heard something fall outside my window, and through a small sealed window, I saw the box in the yard. I knew the box fell into the wrong place, so I waited for someone to take it. I didn't realize that it was war rations. This story of Masan Sunim suddenly took Samu Sunim back in time and reminded him of his own life. The following is a short account of Samu Sunim's experience in Korea during the war. While I listened to Masan Posunim tell me her story, I remembered a time that I stole rice. I was nine or ten years old and I was the youngest child living alone with my mother. We had a small house, but our food supply was always low. For breakfast, I would have watery porridge, and then I would go to school. It would take me 30 or 40 minutes to, to walk home from school. Often, by the time I crossed the bridge over the old city limit, I would feel so dizzy that I would have to sit down for a while. When I finally got home, there was never lunch. We only had two meals, breakfast and dinner. The days were growing longer, and it would be a long while before dinner. I was so hungry. It was enough to drive me crazy. I was always looking for something to eat, crumbs or anything, but the house was bare. One afternoon when I came home, my mother was nowhere around. I hesitated for a second, but then I went straight into her room to her closed chest. And it was the only place in the house I never touched, but that day I opened it, and as expected, I found there our rice bag. I took two handfuls and put them in my pocket. I went into the garden, and I began to secretly chew a mouthful of the raw rice grain in the yard. And then I saw my mother standing before me. It would have been better if she would have reproached me, but instead she remained silent and just began stroking my head. I broke down crying. The emergency rice bag and some other textiles were all she had to support us until the next season of produce in June. I never saw my mother shed tears, but I know she did in silence, and I know that I was the cause of many of those silent tears. I said to Masan, please continue your story. Well, Sunim, it was when we were living in the makeshift hut on the hillside in Masan that the spring greens were all gone, or maybe they had grown too tough to eat. And even though white flowers bloomed and the owls hooted, there was no food. And there were more days without food than with food. And we were so weak from exerting ourselves that we just started lying down 
But one day, the neighborhood shaman appeared, Mudang, and she helped us a little bit from time to time, and so I called her big sister. I said, big sister, why have you come to my home? She said, Ma San Bosonim, it's Buddha's birthday, and we have to go visit the temple. I told her that I never visited temples. I was too busy surviving, and I was ashamed to show up at such a revered place, looking the way that I did. And anyway, I was too weak to walk all the way into the mountains to the temple. But big sister, the Mudang, said, Wake up and get ready. Come on, we have to go to the temple. I said, but big sister, I'm dirty and disheveled. I'm so embarrassed to appear at the temple like this. I don't even have proper clothing. Big sister said, don't worry, I'll take care of that. And she motioned to the two friends she had brought. They brought in water and washed my face and combed my hair. They brought in a little food for me and my children to eat. I was too weak to resist, and so I entrusted myself to them. I agreed it would be very wonderful to visit a temple on Buddha's birthday. Big Sister said, it's not your body, but your mind that will carry you to the temple. I said to Big Sister, what am I supposed to do when I get there? Big Sister said, just tell the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas what's in your heart. When we finally arrived at the temple, I was short of breath but giddy to the point of fainting. They left me to rest under the shade of a tree in the temple compound. I felt good again and gained a little strength. I looked out from where I was resting and saw many old women, grandmothers, all clad in white, accompanied by their daughters and grandchildren, gathering in the fragrant pine tree blossom pollen, blowing in the wind. They were all carrying bundles of grain and fruit, candles and incense, on their way to the altar. They were carrying these offerings on their head. Some were clad in gray and carried tote bags on their backs like monks. It was such a different world. I followed them to the prayer hall called the Daeunjung, or the Popdang. The stone stairs that led up to the main Buddha hall were long and steep. I was emaciated, and so it was very hard. Eventually, I had to crawl on all fours to get up to the top of the steps and enter the prayer hall. When I entered, I looked up and saw the big Buddha figure staring down at me with such a peaceful expression. When I saw the big Buddha, I wanted to do prostrations, but I could only do five, and then I collapsed. I sat down to catch my breath, and I stared up at the big Buddha figure. Suddenly, tears started flowing. First it was a trickle, then a flow, and after that a cascade. I thought my tear fountain had long dried, but there must have been a hidden one. Old sorrow and sadness welled up inside and tears gushed like torrents. I must have cried for half an hour. I felt so light and clear afterward. It was as if a thousand-year obstacle had been oppressing me and was suddenly gone. Suddenly, everything was open, as if the dark clouds and the overcast sky had been swept away. Bosalnim came out of the pop dung and joined Big Sister and the two friends. Right away, Big Sister read the change taking place in Bosalnim. Did you see anything, younger sister, or did the Lord Buddha say something to you? asked Big Sister. I saw the Big Buddha. That was good enough, replied Bosalnim. Are you happy now? 
Today is the happiest day in my life. This is all thanks to you, Big Sister. Big Sister helped Posalim dedicate two lanterns, one for the Buddhas and one for the Bodhisattvas in the world and the other for her children. When they came home, Big Sister invited Posalim to her shrine and asked her to hold the bamboo. She recounted, Big Sister invoked a spirit through a prayer chant. Big Sister kept asking me, are you receiving it? Then she asked me to jump. To my big surprise, my body jumped nimbly up and down by itself. Then she said, now you're ready. You'll make a good genuine mudang. I declined and told her, the way of Buddha is good for me. I'll serve big Buddhas and bodhisattvas wholeheartedly. And then I came home. From then on, I have always cherished the thought of Buddha in my heart. Being poor and hard-pressed, I cannot go to the temple often, but at least once a year, on Buddha's birthday, I have gone to the temple to see the Buddha and dedicate lanterns. It was at the Buddha's birthday in May that I met the Buddha of my heart. Bosalnim was looking straight at me. I told her that I would celebrate Buddha's birthday full-heartedly. Her story touched me deeply, but more than anything else, I realized while listening to her story that I was attached to the signs and forms of my retreat. If I could do retreat while cooking, washing dishes, and having a bowel movement, why couldn't I do a retreat while celebrating a public ceremony? A true practice and study of mind do not take any fixed forms or marks. Therefore, one can practice and study anywhere and anytime unnoticed and invisibly. Furthermore, non-monastic practitioners cannot goof off only monastic practitioners who enjoy the benefit and protection of renunciation can goof off. I reminded myself of the sayings of past teachers, practice in the midst of activity is superior to practice in quiet. When the Sunday service Bosalnims learned of my decision, they were overjoyed and sprang into action for Buddha's birthday preparations. I was struck by their skills and resourcefulness. They organized themselves to make paper lanterns, decorate the altar and meditation hall, and prepare a feast. My role was to run their errands. It was my duty to hang finished lanterns from the ceiling. The ceiling was low, so low that a tall person could nearly touch it. Now with delicate lanterns hanging close to the ceiling, we had to bend low while walking in the Buddha room. No trouble. The Bosalnims were happy and excited. They must have been feeling free doing what they had liked and being at ease with themselves for the first time since they came to Canada where they were limited to taking care of their grandchildren while their sons and daughters were at work. The Bosalims chanted, sang traditional inspirational songs, and laughed out loud working together. It made me so happy to watch them working and enjoying Dharma friendships by sharing their life stories and Buddhist experiences in easy conversation. I was learning from them the meaning of follow sentient beings, the ninth vow of the universal vision, Bodhisattva Samantabra. On the day of the celebration, I used a substitute to ring the temple bell 
In my formal Dharma talk, I reminded the Bosalims that together we were founding members of the first Korean Buddhist temple in Toronto and most probably in Canada. Most of the Asian ethnic Buddhist groups from the Northeast and Southeast Asia were represented in big urban populations in the U.S. and Canada. This particular celebration was unprecedented in the long history of Buddhism because it had the added significance of introducing Korean Buddhism to the West. I continued, It is true that we did not come to this country as Buddhist missionaries, nor did we have social consciousness of our faith as Buddhists. Rather, we came as refugees, immigrants, or dependents. However, these factors do not change the reality of our presence here. The reality of our presence here is that we are first generation of Buddhists from Korea. Like pioneers, being the first generation comes with obligations. Born and raised in Buddhist Asia, we are indebted to the East. Warmly welcomed to this multiracial, egalitarian country and cared for by the Canadian welfare system, we are indebted to the West. How do we repay our indebtedness to all of these? We are poor. We don't have skills. We don't have great knowledge. All we have is Buddhism. So you have to learn to live a little Buddhism to people. You have to share a little Buddhism with your friends and associates and strangers. This little Buddhism could be a little kindness, a little smile, a little help, a little compassion, and a little wisdom. Often a little kindness or a little help is all people need in order to make them feel really happy. The main ceremony was followed by a big feast prepared by Korean Sangha members. All the Bosalims were wearing their traditional holiday dress, consisting of a skirt and short coat. Their grandchildren's put on rainbow-striped garments for the children. Everyone was relaxed and happy, enjoying the feast, relishing the rare moment when they could be at home with each other in a country where everything was still strange and foreign to them. After the feast, we were looking forward to the evening lantern-lighting ceremony. Some went out to walk in the fresh air to pass the time. Old postal nims took advantage of the time to rest and nap. Others checked their lantern dedications and prayer slips that carried their goodwill and messages from their compassionate Buddhist hearts. Around 7.30 p.m., just before dusk, we began lighting candles in the lanterns one by one. We followed the authentic style of the mountain monastery where there was no electricity. The only candles we could get for the lantern lighting were long tapers. So while chanting Sogamoni Bull, we watched the lanterns being lit and glowing in the darkness. But so many candles burning close to the ceiling generated a lot of heat, which made the candles bend or melt down, burning the paper lanterns. I was alarmed. I assigned a young boy to keep watch. To my relief, he did a beautiful job. As soon as he located a burning lantern, he would carefully bring it down to the floor and throw his jacket over it to put it out. He did this several times successfully. 
All this while the Bosalims devoted themselves to chanting undisturbed, since they were used to seeing lanterns burning during the lantern lighting ceremony in Korea. But in Korea, the lantern lighting service was an outdoor event under open sky. The Bosalims must have been transported back to their native country with their devotional hearts and failed to distinguish between outdoors and indoors. Such was the power of the celebration of the Zen Lotus Society. The adventure of Buddha's birthday continued the following year. A few days before Buddha's birthday, the Posalims advised me that we should conduct a liberation of life service in keeping with the first precept of cherishing all life. So we went to a local market and purchased pigeons, ducks, and bullfrogs. We drove up north in Ontario to release them in a protected environment. After the morning ceremony on Buddha's birthday, one Posalnim suggested that we should go for a lantern parade after the lantern lighting ceremony, just like is done in Korea. All the Posalnims agreed with her, so I followed them. Thirty of us hit the street, each carrying lanterns lit with candles. We walked on the sidewalk in twos, chanting along College Street to Young Street and North to Bloor, all over the downtown area of Toronto. It took us two and a half hours to make it back to the temple. Everyone was happy, exhausted, and went home content. These were the days when I had never heard of the fire department violations, building codes, public assembly bylaws, or parade limits. We were all blessed with ignorance of government laws and regulations. Masan Posalnim was an invisible person, but she became visible when she performed prostrations. She performed prostrations slowly, looking at the Buddha statue with each one. I wondered about it. One day I heard her say something briefly in a thin voice while prostrating. It was the first time that I noticed her saying something during prostrations. When I listened more carefully, she was saying, Chishim Kwimyongne. Then I realized right away what it was. That made her visible during prostrations. With my utmost heart, I devote my life to you. <clears throat> Became the living embodiment of her body, mind, and heart, and it began to shine when she did prostrations. Somehow, Masan Posalnim took it upon herself to do the leave-taking after Sunday service and lunch. It must have happened naturally since she was the last one to leave the temple. Most of Bosalnim's grown children had been converted to Christianity, many after they emigrated from Korea. So many of them were not happy about their mother or their parents going to the Buddhist temple on Sundays. They did not understand why their mothers had to go to a poor basement temple and follow old-fashioned and outdated teachings instead of attending a big church and receiving gospel teachings. So reluctantly, they would drop their mothers off at the temple on their way to church. On their way home, they would come to pick up the postal nims. 
but would stay outside in their cars and honk. Then the Poselnims would gather their bags and hasten out. Masan Boselnim would follow them outside to say goodbye. At their children's urging, the Boselnims hurried into the cars. Masan Poselnim would do hopchang and make a deep bow. When she raised herself, the cars would already be gone. Then facing College Street, where the car was headed, she would make another deep bow. Masan Poselnim did this every Sunday with the same degree of utmost heart and would softly say, Sungbul Haseo, may you attain Buddhahood. In her humble and pure mind, everything that came with the Buddhist world was wonderful and magnificent and deserved her veneration. In the Korean Buddhist world, Buddhists say Sungbul Hashipshio to greet people and to say goodbye. Therefore, it has somewhat become perfunctory, particularly when said lacking sincerity and real feeling. I advised her to say, Let the way, let's meet the way of Buddha together. When Masan Bosalam learned to meditate, her simple and humble mind was transformed with no mind. She sat like a rock, silent and timeless, in full lotus posture. After meditation, her life seemed to flow like a river of no mind. Once when I came home from an outing, Bosalim was at the temple meditating. Sensing that I arrived, she came out and told me, When I came and entered the kitchen today, I saw a mouse sitting on top of a rice sack with its eyes closed. It didn't move at all. So I thought it must be dead and said to myself, How wonderful to shed your body at the temple. With Hopchang, I made a deep bow with a prayer. When I raised myself, the mouse had disappeared, she said, and laughed brightly like a child. In August every year, we observe remembrance to our relatives and friends who have gone before us, who have been missing from our lives. We seek peace and reconciliation and support their journey of life. The Bosonim's dedicated memorial tablets and offerings for their deceased and missing and offered services. Masan Poselnim would help with the preparations and attend, but I never saw her offering the service for her relatives or friends. One year during the preparation, I ask, I've never seen you offering services for your kin and friends. Any secret reasons, Poselnim? I don't have anyone to remember or, or offer services for, she parried. How about your late husband, I pressed. Upon that, she jumped up and spat out her words in typical Kyunsang-do dialect and said, What? Service? I was so happy when he checked out that I felt like dancing all day long. Hurrah! It was a day of liberation. She startled me. Masan Polsen passed away in February 2011 at the age of 91. Her Buddhist name was Universal Buddhahood. She was my teacher and truly a formless bodhisattva.
Thank mm-hmm. you.